Hello and welcome to a special 55-1 podcast. My name is Wes Burdine, and my special guest today is Bobby Warshaw, author of the new book, When the Dream Became a Reality. It's available on Amazon.com, and you can go to whenthedreambecameareality.com. Um, he's host of the weekly podcast, The Play, on the Howler Podcast Network. I believe that's where it's housed. housed. I just get it on uh, Stitcher or, you know, whatever podcast app that you use. Um, he's now also a co-host of the MLS extra Li extra time live club and country. You're just, you're getting, he's getting sucked into that, uh, MLS, uh, shilling life. And, uh, and Bobby, thanks for, thanks for joining me. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Do yeah. your, do your listeners know that you're the, you're pretty much the godfather of the Howler podcast that you're the one we've always gone to with any problems we have? No, they don't. They we I keep that uh secret identity. Yeah, I'm 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 like the uh the technical fixer, which is funny because I, I'm I my my knowledge is like a a B minus level and I feel like just you know, it that makes me a god. Well, not just your knowledge literally since I started podcasting, you're you're the guy I've always gone to. You were like my first ever guru. I gave so you I'm a very, I'm gave very you a indebted tutorial. to you for that. Yeah. Well well I'm I'm Really pleased to have you on today. Um, you know, there's no, this podcast, you know, 551 is, is a very Minnesota centric thing. You have, you've never been to Minnesota as far as I know. Schwann's um, Cup, man. Schwann's oh, Cup. You did do Schwann's. That's did going Schwann's on right Cup. now. I'm, so I'm, this a, is, I'm a Schwann's Cup champion under 16 or something. There you go. Did you play against Zlatan? I guess Zlatan's a little older than you. Yeah. Right? He, he has me by a couple years. Zlatan also played at Schwann's Cup. So. Oh. So you you know Nessie, you know the stadium up there, you know you you oh wow well then great you have a, this is a perfect uh, we had a great time at Schwann's Cup one of my family's fondest memories is from you soccer oh well they, there we go I'm I'm glad we this is perfectly timed then um I, you know let me just read the rest of your your bio here so people know um, who you are and why I have you on um, Bobby grew up near Harrisburg Pennsylvania and then he went to Stanford for college and was. Uh, drafted 17th in the 2011 MLS Super Draft by FC Dallas. He went on to play in Sweden and Norway before returning to his hometown club, the Harrisburg City Islanders. Um, so, Bobby, I want to say, first of all, congratulations on completing the book, uh, getting out there published. Um, I, I, I know that, that completing a project like that is a big deal. So, so congratulations on that. Thank you so much. Have, have have you uh, been able to? Does it feel good or nervous? To I mean, you've never done anything like this. You, when you used to produce and perform, it was on the pitch, but now you're like creating something and handing it off. Is is that a different sensation for you? All of the, us in the content world have a similar feeling. Where creating the content is really fun, selling and promoting is not. I'm sure it was the same when you started the website and the pod where you were so stoked to do the design and have the great ideas. And then it's out and you realize the work has just started. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. Yeah. The selling part is, is, is definitely, um, uh, terrible. Um, <laughs> that's right. That's the, a good you know, word for from, it. from all my years of, of being a musician, uh, you know, I, I never, uh, I liked the writing part and then the, the recording was lesser, the production of it lesser. And then once it's a matter of like playing shows and promote, oh my God, that was the worst. I hated like talking to people. So I was always just like, if I can just sell and, and make up what I lost, then I'm, I was, you know, that's hence why I'm not a professional musician. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I want to start here by saying, you know, a lot of times 
Um, the, the audience for, for something like a retired player's book is pretty obvious, right? Because there, there's a, a person of interest. Lots of people want to know about the ins and outs of their daily life, but your story is, is obviously different. It's not a glamorous book. Um, you know, and I, I'm wondering for, for you, who is the audience you feel like you were writing for? I got this question a ton throughout the process and at the end. And the truth is, was I didn't have one. I just wrote the story that was in my heart. I know that sounds a little cheesy, but I just wrote wrote what I thought was the right story to write. I didn't think about who it was to. I didn't think about... It, this sounds weird to say, but I didn't even think about people reading it. When I went live last week, I was like, holy crap. I'm, I, I got horrified that people would actually now read it. If the tone was right, if the, the themes were right, if it was too harsh in time. So I didn't have an audience. I didn't even have... I didn't even think about people ever actually putting their eyes on it. So I know that sounds weird. It's just, I wanted to, I just wanted to tell a good story. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, I imagine you thought about the people, you know, who, would, who might respond to it. Right. I mean, jealous. Yeah. <laughs> jealous true, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, jealous Heinemann might, uh, might try to kick you in the nuts as, as he's wont to do it. You know, he was the head coach, uh, for, for listeners, he's the head coach at FC Dallas. And in the book, you know, you, know, you, you talk pretty frankly. And I, I think, I think from a neutral perspective, pretty fairly, you know, trying to, to talk about the difficulties that the two of you had, but you also talk about, you know, your agent and, you know, the difficulties of like knowing that you, you two are friends, but at the same time, you're not sure if, your best, if anyone's looking out for you, you know, you talk a lot about people who, um, you know, the head coach in, in Norway, uh, Roar, uh, is that what I Roar, yeah, Roar. Yeah. You know, I mean, certainly he, he I'm sure he's going to read this book. He's reading it right now, listening to this podcast, just hating you. But you, I imagine you thought about a little bit about those types of people, or even just like your friends or, um, you, those people who you interact with on Twitter, you know, that type of people, like the people who you know exist out there and they're more yeah. um, real than just random, random stranger who buys your book. Absolutely. So there's different, I'll, I'll parse this out. Was I with, with Shellis? There's two things I want to say to that. One is, yeah, I don't, I don't think that I was harsh towards him. I told the story, right? And I think that there's a very, very real possibility that you can read this and think that I was the bad guy in this scenario to think that I was the asshole and all that. The 24 year old who got mad about not playing enough or not getting what he wanted. I throughout the whole thing. I didn't try and sugarcoat anything. I just, I told the story as it happened. Um, With, sorry, sorry, go ahead. No, I, I, I was going to ask you about, uh, to, about an earlier part. So if you want to finish that, that's fine. Well, then I was going to say the, the one person that I did worry about was Aaron Maines, my agent, because he was a good friend and I, I don't think he necessarily I think he probably did my career wrong, but I don't think he did anything wrong, if that makes sense. He was just another guy in the business. So it's weird to say this out loud. I, I was worried about him reading it. Um, I didn't care about Ruar reading it. I mean, that was just a guy that didn't work hard enough. <laughs> right. And then the last part of that was, yeah. And even I, I at some point I'm going to tell, you know, post on Facebook about the book, but I'm literally going to say, if I know you, I don't want you to read this. If I've ever looked you in the eye or will look you in the eye again, don't read it, but honestly, tell your friends. They probably, they, I want them to read it. You've looked me in the eye and I read it. So it uh, makes me very nervous to think about. <laughs> and thank you for reading it, by the way. I don't, your listeners probably don't realize how often these things are done. And 
with, even though it's about a little article and the host doesn't read the article for, so if you'd have read the book and do the preparation is so impressive and something your listeners well, we'll are very lucky I, to have. We'll see if by the end of this interview, it, it, I've proven I've, I've read it, but um, I, I wonder, do you have the, the book around? I wanted to see if I could get you to read a passage. If not, I can just read it, but no, I, I do actually right here. Yeah. At the bottom of page 13, um, there's a, a paragraph that starts and then just taking that onto the next page that, um, just that full paragraph. Can, can you read that section? From a young age? Yes, please. From a young age, I've wondered if they're mutually exclusive, being a good person and a good player. Whether I could be the, the player, I, whether I could be the center midfielder I dreamed of being and also the person I hoped to become. I wanted to dominate on the field, but I also wanted to be welcomed at the lunch table. Is it possible to be part of the inside jokes as a friend and also hold the same person accountable as a teammate? Um, you, you kind of start your book off and, and this is why I was thinking about, um, audiences because, you know, one of the audiences you could think of for this book is that, you know, that 13 year old kid who plays soccer and a, a dad buys this for them. And you start your book off with kind of an admission that, that you're a little bit of an asshole and that you know that what makes you good on the pitch makes you also kind of a terrible person. And I, I'm curious how that feeling has developed over the years. You know, you talk about it at various stages and a lot of it is, you know, as a 28 year old being retrospectively looking back on that period, but has that, has that kind of, um, um, two parted nature, like developed in different ways or have you noticed it in different ways? That two parted nature was everything in my life for the past 27 years. It's what, kept me up at night. It's also what woke me up in the morning. And that, that two-parted nature was both the best thing in my life and the worst thing. I, I think I feel as a, as a reader, uh, a, a particular reader named Wes, <laughs> I feel a, a kind of a little bit of an affinity for that. I, I feel like I'm, uh, uh, I've, I've always thought of the ways in which like, yes, I'm kind of an asshole and that's, part of what makes me good at the other things that I do. And I, I, I struggle with that too. So I'm, I was really fascinated by that idea because I, I've never been a decent athlete. In fact, I, the only sport I ever played was volleyball, high, varsity volleyball. And I was terrible. What position? Um, uh, I was a center blocker. Yeah. That's what um, I was going to say. That would have been my guess. That's, yeah. And that's I, what your I, body's built for. I, I played, uh, played, we, we were almost state champs in Pennsylvania. Um, you know, but, uh, I, I played and I was the worst one on the team only cause I was a giant. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, but I, I'm just, just, I, I'm wondering if that is a part of your personality that you feel you can kind of do away with now that you don't have the the pitch versus off the pitch problem, or yeah. if that is something that you've now find finds bubbles up in different ways that like now you're an asshole when you're on, uh, <laughs> on the podcast, you know, or, or, or you're, when you're doing MLS live extra or something that, Oh my gosh, like I'm, I'm finding new ways to do this. You're, you're just going for the big question right away. I've got so more I, big questions. So. <laughs> I have no, I have so many answers. To this The one primary one is this was the entire goal of the book. The fact that you can read that and say, I, I'm not a professional soccer player, but I feel the same way is the entire reason I wrote this book. Cause I just think we have these things in life. We all have these vulnerabilities, these insecurities, these things that just make us feel so awful inside. Cause we feel like we're monsters. And the truth is that so many people have the same thing. And if one of us, if we just admit it, then we can all realize that, that 
we're not monsters, right? That we're all similar and we all can do these, these things, not together, but in similar ways. So it makes me really happy that you felt that same way. Uh, and two, right. yeah, sorry. No, so that makes me, that just makes me happy. It makes me feel like I, I did what I wanted with this book. And two, uh, I, I just don't know. I have to figure this out in the world. I mean, you tell me in the real world, it's pretty much the same, right? Will I ever be able to separate them? I think so because I didn't separate them. I tried to kind of shoot the moon on, you know, shoot the moon, so to speak. And it didn't make me feel good, right? That was not the life I wanted. Maybe if I'd made a world cup, I would have been able to live with it. Um, but ultimately I just made the decision that this wasn't worth it. That achievement, that striving, you know, I basically achieved my three biggest goals in life, right? Like I, I got drafted. I scored a professional goal. I was a, a college first team all American. Uh, I've now been on TV as a host. Like these are the things that I wanted to do as a 12 year old and that my life feels the same, right? It doesn't feel like I've accomplished anything. And I don't think that feeling ever goes away. So at that point, and being an asshole and trying to strive, even if I get what I want, it's not, doesn't make me feel better. So, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm 28, right? I don't really know anything in life yet. But one thing I think I am starting to figure out is like, dude, it's just like yourself, you know, do a process that you're comfortable with because the end doesn't justify the means. Yeah. So that's kind of what I'm figuring out right now or hoping to figure out. Yeah. Well, um, good luck with that process. And, um, you know, to, to, to take us a little bit through parts of the book, you know, in 2013, we, we already alluded to the period where you were, you kind of fought with Shell Assignment in FC Dallas. And so you pushed for a move that eventually got you to the tiny Swedish club of Angleholms. And, um, that period, you only played nine games for them, but it was absolutely crazy because you scored eight goals in nine games. And I'm wondering, I mean, that, that was it, right? That, that seems to be maybe, was that the peak or can you kind of describe that feeling for, for the listeners? I I can't describe it to be honest because it was just, but even I, I really can't describe it. It was, it was unfathomable, unbelievable. It's just, I mean, I was playing attacking mid, which I've never played. I haven't played since I was 19. Um, yeah, I mean, Wes, I honestly can't describe it in any coherent way. Well, you, you do, you do in the book, you tell this, this story about sitting on an airplane and looking at the, the seat, the person in front of you and they had a newspaper open and it was you and it was a story. It was, it was talking about how now all of a sudden this, this great American player is, is being linked to Malmo and, and, uh, I forget, Helsingborg, Helsingborg. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, were, were there other stories? That's the one story you tell in, in the, the book, but was there other things where you started to realize like, Oh my God, like I'm not just some guy who went over to Europe now. I'm, 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 a, or I'm, you know, I'm not like middling at this tiny club. I, I, something's going on and people are noticing what I'm doing. There were a couple. I mean, one is, I remember being on the field once and by the end of that rant, and at the end of that, the, the Swedish players it was almost like we were 12 years old again. And you man mark somebody. I mean, the Swedish players were like, always make sure, you know, they're always pointing to me. They're always saying, get him, get him. If I'm open, you know, the captain is screaming, how is he open? How is he open? And that was kind of funny from going from Dallas when nobody knew me and they probably, the, the, op, the uh, opposition probably wanted me to get the ball to now being essentially man marked at a professional level was cool. Uh, when I was in Norway, when I had another a peak season, you know, I had a room, a teammate who, you know, sat across from the table. He's a big Norwegian. And he's like, nobody on this team or on this league doesn't understand why you're not at Rosenborg right now. Um, and at that point, Rosenborg was, you know, they had just beaten Galatasaray. They had just 
won their Europa League group. And he's like, yeah. nobody understands. And again, it's a teammate trying to be nice, but it was such a matter of fact thing. And be like, you know what? That's, I even, this is weird to say, this is, and this is not in the book. I even wrote in my little, I don't have a journal per se, but I have, you know, just random thoughts throughout the day. And I said, Bobby, just remind yourself, you might have bad days or you might, forget that you're a decent player but just remember this moment where this teammate believed in you and that you do have this ability to be good um, and each of those were fleeting moments of of yeah just feeling good does that memory have the does that does are you able to actually do that then and and you know you, you've gone through no. a pretty difficult uh, no. <laughs> last couple of years of figuring out what you're going to do with your life it doesn't have that value no, it doesn't. I've got a little bit of solace in it, but no, I'm just still some guy who, you know, does a podcast now about other yeah. people playing. Um, so that period could have turned into a contract, as we said, with these big Scandinavian clubs that, that you were linked to. Um, and, and, you know, people have to read the book. Um, there's a lot of really great details that I find um, really useful for someone who, you know, I talk to a lot of players um, I talk to agents and things. I, I have a sense of how things work, but just seeing it laid out there, I think is really interesting for fans to see like, here's what it was. I, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for these guys to call and it didn't happen. And, and I also imagine that a lot of players eventually have something in their career that is sort of that sliding doors moment where there's a, there's a weird alternative universe, um, your career and life could have gone through. And, you know, all of a sudden, that Helsingborg contract happens. And then right now you and I are talking because you're in the world cup uh, qualifiers, you know, like there's some weird stuff like that. Do you, do you think about that as a pivotal moment or do you also talk to other players about their own weird or do they all, do you think have those one moment or something where something different happens and they're all there, they end up as, Cristiano Ronaldo or something. Do you know the story of Aaron Schoenfeld in Israel right now? Um, you, you, I know the basic story. So you, you tell, just, tell he me. just, he basically was out of contract with the Columbus crew. He, they offered him something like a hundred thousand dollars and he just wanted them to pay his agent's fee, which was, you know, $5,000 and they wouldn't do it. So he goes to Israel just basically to threaten Columbus. He goes on trial for a week just so that Greg Berholder panics and pays the agent fee. Basically, he he plays in one friendly. He scores a hat trick in this friendly with this team he, he didn't even want to play for. He was just using them as leverage. He scores a hat trick, and next thing you know, he's on the front page of the paper in Maccabi Haifa and Hapoel uh, Hapoel Tel Aviv. Basically, the biggest the biggest clubs in Israel are now trying to sign him just because of this hat trick in 30 minutes of this game. He didn't even want to play in, just trying to get an extra five thousand dollars back in Columbus, Ohio, and now he's making you know. Three, however much, you know, $300,000 a year living in Tel Aviv playing in Europa League. Right. So I just, I love telling that story. It just shows how fleeting and, and crazy these moments are. So yes, to answer your question, I knew that that was my moment. I didn't know it at the time, but I could kind of feel it. You know, I had eight goals, nine games, and that doesn't come along very often. You've got to capitalize. You know, some players have four or five good games and we look at, we look in the transfer news and we see players who are sitting out of practice and demanding higher wages. And I get it because you get one shot. You get you get your one piece of leverage, your one time when you're in demand. 
You know, maybe some players get multiples, but the most of us really, we only get one. And part of it too is, was, is it's just a law of averages, right? Most players are average. They're very, very similar. Any, any differences are on the margin. So if you can get out of your ability a way to go above that, you also have to acknowledge that you're probably not that good, but if other people think you are, you've got to capitalize. I mean, players don't acknowledge that. They think they're great. But just in general, you've got to capitalize on those moments. So do other players notice it? Probably not as much as mine, but there are some people who had their moments and took advantage of it. Is that something you've you've discussed with other other players who are retired or, or still existing about? Uh, do, do, have you ever had that conversation? Uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this given my current employment, but uh, MLS doesn't allow it, right? So if most yeah. of my friends are MLS guys, there's no you don't you don't renegotiate your contract mid contract in MLS. You don't get sold right away. The thing about where I was, I was at a selling club, so the eight goals nine games, Malmo makes a bid and they do it right away. Or, you know, my contract's up in six months and they re-up. So in MLS, these fleeting moments don't matter as much because contracts are much sturdier. Whereas in Europe, everything is much more fluid. So things can change in the two months. Yeah. I want to take a, a break, uh, do a little musical interlude, and then come back and uh, we'll, we'll talk some more about your book. Welcome back to the 55-1 podcast. I am joined by Bobby Warshaw. He is, is formerly of several Scandinavian clubs, uh, FC Dallas. His last club was Harrisburg City, City Islanders, where he returned to. Um, he published a book called When the Dream Became Reality. That is the website. Um, people should go buy this. It's available um, as an ebook. And also as a paperback, and um, I, I want to recommend it highly to people. Um, I, I want to ask you about this one chapter, which um, comes a little bit out of the blue and is is pretty remarkable to me. So in in, in this the chapter um, called "Really Good Looking Dudes," you talk okay. about your. There's, there's two chapters that come out of the blue, so I figured this had to be one of what you were going to bring up. <laughs> You talk about your sexuality in a way that that strikes me as remarkably honest for a professional athlete. And I know that you're now a a, a recovering professional athlete, but it's a good word. You know, you, you t talk about your your sexuality on a spectrum and not just a binary of gay straight. And you talk about how you know your life is dominated by you know ninety five percent of the time you are spending it with young handsome men who are in prime fitness. And you write the, this line where, you know, um, you're with uh, a couple of your friends and, and with uh, about one of them, you say, I wondered what George would do if I were to grab his head and plop a wet kiss on him. And then you compare that to a very different feeling for a woman named Jess uh, to whom you were more attracted. And, and And you're just spending a little bit of time just thinking about what an athlete's sexuality, you're specifically, but... um. I wonder, I have so many questions about this, and, and I, I think, the first of all, um, I, I want to say kind of as a statement, I, I think it's a, a, a kind of brave thing to write um, because, it, you know, you have to be very open. And I wonder how hard that chapter was for you to write. Well, thank you for that. I will say this is the... This chapter is essentially the entire reason I wanted to write this book. Not necessarily this chapter per se, but just the premise behind it. 
that there are so many things that we just don't talk about enough or honestly or properly around professional sports. And I think sexuality is one of them. The chapter on relationships is one of them. There's a chapter on racism within teams mm-hmm. and culture divides that got cut. Um, so I'm glad you like this chapter because this is like, I, when I this thought about writing a book, it was for the exact reason of getting ideas like this out there. And in that way, it wasn't that hard for me to write. Yeah, it just, that wasn't, because I think even if I was gay, I wouldn't be upset. It wouldn't worry me. It wouldn't. So yeah, this was actually probably the easiest chapter for me to write hmm. in a lot of ways. It, was it something that, I mean, did you, did you talk to, to George and say, Hey, you know, this is a thing that I'm going to, that I'm going to write. Yeah, yeah. I sent it to George and Ugo. I did not send it to Wida. Okay. Uh, but we wouldn't care. I mean, at some point, like, I was yeah. so close to these guys because they wouldn't care. And we'd actually, yeah. I don't, I probably shouldn't, but we'd have texted me. He was like, dude, fuck off. I was like, oh no, you read the chapter. He was like, you're saying George is better looking than I am. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. He was, I was like, so you're cool with that? He was like, yeah, that was a great chapter. I'm just pissed you think George is better looking than me. <laughs> I mean, George is a very good looking man. You're a great so. looking dude. So yeah, they were all cool with it. And like you said, one of the reasons I was friends with all these guys is that they would be okay with this, right? And I don't know. I mean, the question I didn't ask is if they felt the same thing. Uh, so maybe that's for another day. But probably, I mean... Here's just, here's what I bring up. Sorry. Here's what one of the primitive reasons I do bring this up and to frame the, the conversation, right? Is in the history, if we think that there's been, you know, 20 teams in MLS history or whatever, and 20 play, basically there's been hundreds, close to thousands of MLS players and one has been gay, right? Why is that is the question I was trying to solve. And is it because we're in the closet or just because as male athletes, we're, there's parameters we're supposed to leave, to live in. And you just can't, there's not even space to have these thoughts. So that's the question I was trying to answer is why in all these male professional sports, are there no male gay athletes and it's much more prevalent in women's sports? Yeah. And I I think that one of the, that, that point you make about, you know, 95% of my life is it's, it's all about our bodies. It's all about this kind of um, male social situations I don't, you know, the women I meet uh, are either friends from high school or I went to a club and met some, you know, I mean, it's not, I, I, I'm taking this from, from your book and, you know, but it's not easy for, for you to just make relationships with women outside of college, you know, now that you're outside of college, because you're in this completely male environment. And I, I, I imagine that that is, that what you're describing this kind of, uh, you know, I'm somewhere on this sexuality spectrum. You know, what, what do I think about all these attractive men around me? That that is a, especially a very common thing. Not even just like the, how many gay players are, are there out there, but just like, I mean, I mean, you're describing something just more in the, in the middle and, and more mundane, I, I guess. And, uh, and that, that seems to me, um, like, like something in particular that is not really, um, not really thought about. So I, I thought that that was pretty uh, fascinating to, to think, to read. I'm glad. And I, yeah, I'm glad to hear that. Cause it was one, this is the chapter where I thought if people were going to close the book, they'd be like, eh, this is a little weird for me. Can, so I'm you, glad. Can you tell me about the, the, the chapter that, that got cut the, the racism chapter? Why, why did you cut? So it got cut just because, 
the general background of the story is originally just, you know, these three or four topics I think we're covering enough. And then my five craziest stories, you know, getting my head smashed in Brazil, going to Israel, scoring my first professional goal, the draft. It was really just a hundred pages of these random stories. And then it was George Qureshi who just said, Bobby, I think you can do more. I think there's a better story to be written here of growth and development. And I was like, dude, you crazy, but I'll try. <laughs> so basically the race is just at some point you just have to have a storyline. One of the goals of the yeah. book is that I, I want it to be a nonfiction, but so many nonfictions just suck and you have to drag through them. So can I tell a story? Can I make it entertaining? Can I make it fun? You know, it's not a novel obviously, but I wanted to read like a fiction or a novel. And unfortunately, there's casualties to things that don't fit that storyline. They don't fit helping get the reader from A to B. Uh, they had to get cut. And one of those was the racism chapter. Because uh, generally in a locker room, if you get four white dudes together or four Latin dudes together and they're complaining about the team, they're trying to figure out what's going wrong, they're not going to point at another white guy. Right. And I think there's, it's deeper. What I say, what I said in the chapter is that I don't think it was racist. I don't think it was based on skin color. It was more likely based on just style preferences, right? That Americans like certain kinds of players, Latins like certain kind of players. And you think about a holistic team that they would usually be mad about, you know, an American would be mad about a, a Europe, you know, a Western European style or an African style or rather than skin color. But I mean, it happens often enough that it's worth asking the question. It's worth having us as players and teammates and men look in the mirror and say, is it skin color or is it something else? So yeah, that's a chapter that got cut. Um, by the end of the book, you're grappling with the ability to move on from being a professional and, and you're talking about what it means to be not special in a way. And you've been spe special most of your life by being recognized publicly for, for being a soccer player. And, and once that's gone, it, it's hard to reconcile with not, kind of being special anymore um you know myself most listeners aren't public aren't players you know not public figures but i guess i that strikes me as a really familiar feeling to people that that there's there are certain stages where, where of life where we walk away from things as adults that seemed so core to our identity identities to earlier parts of our lives and that's a difficult thing uh, and I'm I'm wondering, you know, uh, you talk about it some in the book, but I'm just wondering what what has that been like so far? As as you you know, I know you were on like a, a spirit quest uh, in California for a little bit, and you've you've been doing that. Is has that been a pretty uh, um, dark and difficult process, or what what has that been like? Well, I think if you read the book, you'll know that it's all been a pretty dark and and tough process, you know, for better or for worse. But after no, I mean this is. One of the reasons I was very, I wanted to do the book and that the book was good for me because it gave me a purpose. You know, I might have been lying to myself, but I really felt as though I was doing something meaningful in writing the book that I was bringing purpose and value to the world and helping people connect and feel more, feel more normal and, and just feel better about their lives. So having stopping and going right into the book helped a ton. It gave me a reason as much as I had one to get up in the morning, to get out of bed and to put on pants and <laughs> to do work. Uh, so the transition thus far has been pretty good because the, the book gave me as much adrenaline and passion and energy as playing did, including the volatility for, you know, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's now that I'm actually super scared about. It's now that I really don't know what to do. Now that the book's out, you know, just let that be. It's what do I do next? 
what is going to be because this is you know my big decision right what's my next job that sets me for a career or future um and honestly yeah. you know i try not to think about it until you brought it up so thanks for that well i i, I do think that that is i mean that most people just about no one uh, can identify <laughs> with the, the exact nature of what you're describing um but what you're describing the the phenomena is is completely real you know i i i went through this thing where i finished my phd uh and left academia and and was like i had a couple ideas of what i was doing and i'm still trying to make those trying to figure out how to make them happen and that that i like i think maybe it's like a millennial thing <clears throat> but i think this idea of like careers is just gone and that there's like just ways that people make in the in the world and and that's a pretty exciting thing but it's a really terrifying thing and and so i think that that reading about that from from this perspective is um it's good even though it's it's you know reading through your terror of it but do you and one thing i will say is one of the reasons that i do like you for multiple reasons is that you acknowledge it too hearing you say yeah it's scary man i'm bumbling through it too but Hey, because from a distance, it looks like you're doing great, right? You've got a wonderful family. You're doing, you're creating great content from a distance. I'm like, dude, Wes really has his shit together. So for you to be like, no, dude, I'm, I'm just making up as I go along too. Feels good for me to hear and it motivates me for tomorrow. And it just, it feels good to hear you be open about that. Yeah. So I appreciate that, that you say that. You know, when, when I was teaching a lot, uh, um, I'd, I'd talk to like juniors and seniors in, in college and, and just try to prepare them for the darkness that is graduating college. And you probably, you didn't have that because you, you went straight into this thing and it was the, you know, the pinnacle of, of your life. You talk about this kind of uh, intense joy and satisfaction of being drafted in the first round and, and, you know, being somebody. And, and you talk about the, the way in which that you're still mundane, but at the end of the day, you still went somewhere and you had a, a, a kind of, purpose and I, I think that that is a a thing that I, I always try to prepare students like you guys just I know you're at a great point in your lives but just remember next year you're going to be really friggin sad and you don't know what you won't know what to do with yourself so just just keep that in the back of your head while you're really happy with your friends right now yeah and one of these two is just it's just the expectation of life right we use this word happy we use this word joy as if they're the end-all be-all and listen, uh, maybe I'm wrong, but it just, it feels like we just need to frame the conversation different. It's okay to, this is, I mean, so in my, in my journey to find a new me and a better, happier me, one of the things I've looked up East, Eastern studies and one thing is it's, it's okay to suffer. It's okay to feel pain. You're not doing anything wrong. You shouldn't try and push it away. You shouldn't try and run away from it. It's just okay to not be happy for a moment. And it feels like nobody freaking says that often enough or admits that they're not happy for a second. It's okay. And the sooner we acknowledge it, as soon as we acknowledge we're scared, we don't know what the heck we're doing, we'll be better off. So I'm glad that you, that you tell that to your, to your students. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know how much they listen, but, um, <laughs> you know, you're, you are now you've transitioned in this role of kind of, uh, doing various things that are all kind of like piecing together, figuring out what you're doing. And one of them is, is doing this MLS extra time live stuff. Uh, you're doing the play podcast every week that, um, everyone should go check out. Um, you're writing, uh, what is your, you're still doing 
heavily soccer stuff. What is your experience of soccer now? Are, are, do you, is it like, is it something that you can love or enjoy in, in a certain way? Or is it, is it difficult to kind of get your brain into encountering this thing that was such a big part of your life in a much different way? Stop me if I go along on this, but I've got so many different thoughts on it. <laughs> One is that I was ready to get out of soccer. When I was done playing, when I was done with the book, I, it's thing I toiled with for a few months. And about the turn of the turn of the year, I decided that I was done with soccer. And then MLS calls and asked me to do a show. And I'm like, and honestly, here the story is, and I would tell them this, I had just booked a ticket to Nicaragua. The story had gone to the editor. The editor had, was going to have it for seven to 10 days. And I looked up the cheapest ticket out of DC and it was Nicaragua. And I booked it for a week. And 20 minutes after I book it, MLS emails and says, Hey, somebody just bailed on us. We need a co-host for the show. And I emailed back and I said, no. Then I was like, wait, they're going to pay me to do this show talking soccer. So I was like, I'll take the money. That'll pay for my flight to Nicaragua. Problem solved. I was like, then I'll be done with soccer. Um, the show went well. They asked me to come back. And the, the truth is, was as much as I was ready to get rid of soccer and to see what kind of human being I would like without soccer in my life, I just really enjoyed doing the show. You know, we, I watch a ton of games and I enjoy watching all the games and we sit around and watch all of Saturday together. Then we plan off Sunday and we just talk soccer and it just, it, it felt good almost in a way that, that scared me. Um, and I, I finally made up this decision to get away from soccer. So for the most part, I've got one more show on Wednesday and then I'm going to reevaluate. Um, here's, here's what I would say is that I've read a ton on what I want to do after, and I'm interested to hear your thought on this. And, um, whatever it is, and these are cliche words, right? It's one thing to, to say them. It's another to figure out the heck they mean. Like, I want to do something that has purpose, right? That makes me feel like I'm bringing value to the world. And I do think that there's value in talk, in raising the level of a conversation. Even though soccer is not politics or healthcare or the environment, there's a huge amount of merit and just raising the level of of conversation, partially because I think that seeps into those other things, which are much more life and death, but also just because it it feels good to to talk about things and to be informed. So there, I have found a sense of meaning and purpose in trying to do a good job and in educate and inform and entertain. So that's my long answer to what you did not expect to be a. <laughs> Well, yeah. Answer. Well, I mean, I, I feel like, um, the, you know, us and, and the listeners can all just take this over to the pub and, and can continue this. Cause I, I mean, what you're talking about again is, is a really basic human problem of, um, trying to figure out what that actually means to, to, to what, what actually purpose means. And, uh, I think, you know, there's, there's the idea of what you're doing and then the content of what you're doing you know, I'm writing for Politico doing political stuff, or I'm writing for MLSsoccer.com. And I think that um, it's really fascinating and and important for us to kind of, for us as fans to, to hear our professional players. And I, I've, uh, I think a little bit more guys like you are being a little bit more um, open about this stuff. Um, but to see professional players and that go through these weird transitions it helps i think um us uh have much more human interactions with players um and and i also think that it it's it's useful to 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 see that and think about how how prevalent it is even if it's even if it isn't you know the 
the the same content as moving from professional soccer to something else. But uh, you know, along those lines, that um, I'm I'm kind of curious if you uh, if other players, because you've been so public about this even before the the book, you know, which just came out. Um, if other players have kind of reached out to you or you've had these conversations more um, to, to this about this conversation about the transition to being a, a civilian, do I, do I retire early? You know, am I going to, was it, um, who's the, the Columbus guy, uh, homegrown guy who retired and became an organic farmer. I'm blanking. Eddie um, Gavin, Eddie Gavin. Didn't he become a farmer? I, I don't know if it was a farmer, okay. but something along those lines. It was what in a, the genre. A, something of farmer. you would guess based on the, on the beard he had. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, he he has a bluegrass band for sure. Um, <laughs> but you know, the, these kind of things where it it seems so um, to a random fan, it seems so uh, out of the blue. But um, everyone's got to have an exit plan, and not everyone's going to go be a coach because a lot of people are just freaking sick of it, or just. People have more than one interest in their lives. This is something I struggled with a lot. And hope, I hope people don't think that when they read the book, oh, what a brat. He had this great life. He didn't appreciate it. Um, I'm very aware of that. And it just didn't – this is this is my – again, another roundabout answer to your question. It's a job like anyone else, right? And when the job doesn't go your way, just like so many other people find in their own lives – it might be a little better a lifestyle job, but it still turns into a job. So yes, I now have friends who are getting into this. They still love soccer, but the job hasn't gone their way. And in the last, you know, probably two months, I've now had four or five people reach out and say, how'd you do it? What's the process? I'm thinking about it. Um, so, it's only, yes. there's only so many MLS co- co-host uh, positions out there though. So, well, um, here's, I, I, a, here, sorry, give myself one set, but one yeah. pat on the back just because it's something I am proud of when I tell people it's just go do things right yeah. every year, whether it was athlete story or the play too many MLS players are just going home and watching Netflix and sticking on, sitting on their butt. Then their career ends and they say, what do I do? Right. When I was in Europe and I, I was in smaller teams, but those guys are doing something, you know, they think they, they think that they're lucky to work until 1 PM because they get to do other things and build other skills in America. We're lucky to work to 1 PM because it means we get to go play halo longer. What so are those you, guys in, in Nor- Norway doing? What, what kind of uh, um, uh, they, you know, second things were they up to? It's much more prevalent to guys to be in school. You know, the idea of if you're you know, up until 21, 22, you're usually going to school in some way. Um, some guys have, you know, literally other jobs. And they're, sometimes they're even manual labor just to make more money. I mean, why would you not, right? It's, it's four or five extra hours in the day to get a wage for your family, for your home, so, and they're not even, the Norwegians are not intense on working, but they just thought to itself, it's silly that I'm done at 1 p.m. I can go make myself and my family better. But in America, we don't do that. You know, these guys should be building skills, not only for that, but it'll just make you a better player that you're not stressing about soccer all day. Um, I, I want to uh, start to wrap it up, but I, I don't, I do not want to give readers the impression that this book is a downer um, because I, I don't think it is. And I know that, um, that you maybe kind of jokingly refer to it as it, but uh, there's there um, there are some fantastic parts to it, and especially talking about kind of the the crazy up and downs that you go through in a soccer career, um, and I think what what I value most of it is is that that part I said of of just seeing the these kind of 
agent interactions and, and just seeing the, the amount of um, uh, contingency and chance that these all of these players we now recognize having read your book um, their their careers and, and lives have you know I mean a bad injury you know at some point at the wrong time just send someone off you know they they never recover from it or you know making too quick a decision on a contract uh, something that, like not going to the right place and, and it's just so little of these players so how high they get and how great they get the ones we we revere some of them are the cristiano ronaldo's right but some of them are like leo messi who is also a genius but um he just never gets injured right so that's one of his super skills he never gets injured and so you know if he was someone who had a little bit more injury proneness how leo messi's career could be you know so much different that's exactly right. People think that professional sports are a meritocracy and they just, they're not. There's luck and there's coaches and there's circumstance. You know, fortune is fleeting and there's so many factors that go in to who succeeds and who doesn't. You know? Well, and I, I, I hit my luck to maybe get drafted in the first round. So I don't think mine was unlucky or lucky. You know, I think mine came, mine, you know, came and went. Well, um, Bobby Warshaw, I want to say thank you so much. Uh, I've, I've been looking forward to this book for a long time, he hearing you talk about it. Um, congratulations. And uh, I, everyone should go t to Amazon. When the Dr Dream Became Reality is the book. And uh, I, I hope look forward to seeing you again sometime soon. Wes, thanks so much for having me. That was really fun. <laughs>